Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. What a privilege it is to be here again to study God's Word. And every Monday morning, usually Sunday night, I start thinking about the next sermon. And every Sunday night or Monday morning, I'm thinking I'm going to cover a a good amount of ground. I want to see um, large sections and how they fit together. I want you to be able to see how the Gospel of John fits together, how the parts interact with each other. Sometimes if we go so deep into a verse and so lose our understanding of where we are even in the chapter itself, sometimes that can do a disservice to us. So I originally wanted to preach from verse 12 all the way through verse 30, but as the week progresses, and I keep seeing more as I dive into these verses, that, that goal of getting to verse 30 seems a lot further away. There is so much, all this to say, there is so much that can be said about these verses. We never, ever, anyone who preaches the word of God never exhausts its riches, ever. So it should always be understood that we're only skimming the surface. Every sermon, no matter who it is, is skimming the surface of the glories that are found in those verses. We're going to do that again this morning. We'll see how far we can go because there are riches right off the bat in the first verse that we're going to come to. But let's get some context before we dive in and before we read these verses We are in chapter 8, verses 12 through 30, and these verses come off of the heels not specifically of chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Remember, we looked at chapter 753 uh, through uh, chapter 8, verse 11. It's in brackets in your Bibles. That means that it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, You can go back and listen to the sermon from last week. We did preach the idea of the passage, although I do not believe this passage, chapter Uh, 7 verse 53 all the way through chapter 8 verse 11 is inerrant, holy, inspired scripture. So really to get our context, if you go back to chapter 7, you have to go back to Jesus claiming uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles that he is the living water. Whoever is thirsty can come to him to drink. Uh, Verse 37, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And if you drop down to verse 52, there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of argument going on about who Jesus is. And they answer, this is specific to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is saying, we can't judge Jesus. We need to hear him out. We need to hear what he's saying. And so they answer in verse 52, you're not also from Galilee. Are you search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee? That is the Pharisees, the religious leaders mocking Nicodemus saying that Jesus could not be the Messiah. So right off of the heels of verse 52, um, search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. We should jump to verse 12 in chapter 8. Then Jesus again spoke to them. So this is all still the same day, same place, same area in the temple on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when all of this takes place. We've seen in chapter 7 the unbelief of Jesus' brothers, the unbelief of the crowds, the confusion of the crowds, the unbelief of the Pharisees, the offer that Jesus makes to believe, to be satisfied, and the responses to that offer. 
John, throughout his gospel, is just painting a picture for us of what unbelief looks like, what true saving belief looks like, what belief that is unsaving looks like because there is such a thing. And now we're getting into what does just out and out rejection look like? John's just giving us the responses to Jesus' statement and showing us that we too respond the same way. How do you respond? Do you respond as a true believer, as a false believer, or as a mocker of Jesus Christ? So he's doing this again here in this section, and he is going to give us a claim of Jesus that is very well known to us all, that he is the light of the world. And then we're going to see the reaction to that claim by the religious leaders. Let's read these verses together. John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I'm not alone in it, but I and the father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. He was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, that we would hear you speak to us very clearly, not an audible voice, but your word that has been passed down 
and perfectly transmitted, even as we saw last week. We have the very word of the living God. So we desire to listen to you speak. I pray that we would all hear a better message than I would proclaim as your Holy Spirit would give us the gift of illumination this morning. May we see Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Just if we're to divide this uh, section um, into, into an outline, if we're going to see the themes of light and darkness are pervasive. Jesus begins the entire section by saying, I'm the light of the world. And then he's going to say, you can't go where I'm going. Uh, you are going to die in your sins. That would be darkness. So really, we could divide this passage into two main sections. Number one, what the light looks like, what the light looks like, which is verses 12 through 20. And number two, what the darkness looks like, verses 21 through 30. So we have what the light looks like, what the darkness looks like. Let's start with the light. Jesus says, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Now, this statement just as when Jesus spoke, um, if, you, if you're thirsty, you can come to me and you can drink and you can be satisfied. Just as that by itself is, is pretty amazing, but it's even more profound when you put it in its context. Remember, Feast of Tabernacles, uh, it's a feast that was um, commanded in Leviticus. Uh, it's remembering the wilderness wanderings, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And so there was a special moment during uh, this feast. On the last day of this feast, there was a special moment when the high priest would take a golden pitcher, go down to the pool of Siloam, um, grab some water from the pool of Siloam, go back up, pour the water out onto the altar, and everybody would be dancing and singing and rejoicing because it was a remembrance of the way that God provided water from a rock in the wilderness wanderings. And so right when that is being poured out, on the last day when the water is being poured out onto the altar to remember how the people of Israel were satisfied by God by giving the water, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me to drink. So in context, in the feast, it makes it more profound. So too, Jesus is saying the same thing here. If he were just to say, I'm the light of the world, that's a pretty profound statement considering what that means textually, and we're going to talk about that. But it's even more than that. Because it's, it's stuck inside of a moment. So with the, I'm the living water, you can come to me and you can um, never thirst again. Just as that was stuck in a moment where the water is being poured out. This is stuck in a, in a very specific moment. Historians tell us that there were um, candelabras that were all put around the, the temple. Um, Jesus specifically is in the treasury. Um, you can see verse 20. He spoke these words in the treasury, in the temple. That's in the court of women, and in the court of women is where all of these candelabras would be held. Um, there were also um, trumpets that would kind of funnel down. They were all attached. There were 13 trumpets attached to walls, uh, in, in places on the walls in the temple where you would put your money. Um, this is where, uh, as an offering to the Lord, the, the woman gave her last two coins and put them into the, the end of the trumpet that would funnel down. So these candelabras um, were sitting there. Each candelabra held 65 liters of oil to be burned. So each candelabra held 65 liters of oil to be burned. So if you think about those two liter bottles of soda, that's 32 and a little bit. 
if I do math correctly, which I rarely do, but if I do math correctly, I think it's 32 and a little bit of those bottles in one candelabra. And so at the end of the feast, to commemorate, remember that the water commemorated water being um, spewn from the rock that God provided. Here, at the end of the feast, as they would celebrate, you know what? God led the people of Israel in the wilderness by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And he's still leading us today, not by cloud or fire, but by his word. We're going to light all of these different candelabras and there would be a huge flaming fire going out to the entire temple. It was called technically the illumination of the temple. And it was during this moment that Jesus says, as all of these candles are lit to remind them of the pillar of fire by day or by night and the the lighted pillar of cloud by day, that Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. Historians tell us that Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 6 and 49, verse 6 were quoted when these candles were lit. Those passages say, I will be a light to the nations. Jesus is standing up saying, just as you celebrate God's guidance and direction in the days of old and his guidance and direction now, He has spoken clearly, Hebrews 1, in these last days through his son. I am here so that you would have light. I am here so that you would have light. And this brilliance of light that would go throughout the entire temple and could be seen all the way on the other sides of the mountains. The the historians tell us that you could tell it was like a diamond in all of its brilliance that was shining brightly. You could tell that the illumination of the temple ceremony was happening. Jesus says, I'm even brighter than that. I'm even brighter than that. If you follow me, the light will never go out. I will lead you to God. I will lead you to everlasting life. That's why he says these words at this moment. I am the light of the world. What would his hearers have thought of this? What would they have thought of this statement? I am the light of the world. We kind of hear it and go, okay, what does that mean? The entire Old Testament has this phrase, light of the world or light to the nations or light to the Gentiles or light to the Jews constantly all over the place. Let me give you just a couple. Uh, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the, the servant of God is described as being the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. He's going to bring light. He's going to rise and bring light into darkness. That's why Simeon says in his prophecy in Luke chapter 1, verse seven, 78 and 79, that the Messiah is going to be a light to those who sit in darkness. He's come to give us light. He's come to give us hope. So when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, the hearers would have instantly seen, okay, he's telling us that all of this uh, vast celebration of the illumination of the temple um, is pointing to something that he is claiming he is. But secondly, they would have known he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He says, I am the light of the world. Just simple observations. It's not... A light, not indefinite article. I'm a light, one of many. Come, come however you want. Me, I'm an option. Other people are options. I am the light, definite article, the only light. The world has no other light than Jesus Christ. If there is to be light in the world, it must be him or there is only darkness. There is no alternative. Number two, he says, 
I am the light of the world. Not Jerusalem, not Israel. I'm the light of the world. I am the light to all men. Everyone has light accessible to them. And everyone needs it. Everyone needs it. The world is in darkness and the world needs light. I think this is such an important theme in the Bible, but specifically in the Gospel of John. Remember John chapter 1, verse 4. John begins his gospel with this. In him, in Jesus, in the Word, was light, and that light was the life of men. In him is life, and that life is the light. It brings light. Life and light, light and light together. John begins his gospel with this. The life of Jesus Christ here on earth enables you to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And until Jesus imparts life to you, because we're in darkness and because we're dead, we couldn't see the light to begin with. That's the new birth in chapter 3. I just think this is so crucial, so key to everything that John tells us in his gospel. But practically to us, when Jesus claims to be the light of the world, He claims that the only alternative to following him is walking in darkness. Outside of Jesus, there's only darkness. This is why John writes in 1 John that in him is light and apart from him, only darkness. In him, there is no darkness at all. Before Jesus came to save us, before he opened our eyes, we all walked in darkness. Remember Genesis chapter 1, before light came, before God said, let there be light, the world was formless, it was void, and it was dark. We could almost say that that's us as well. Before the light of the Savior enters into our lives, we are formless. We have no direction. We have no purpose. We are void of meaning. We cannot live to glorify God and to savor his goodness because we don't see it. And we are in the darkness. Oh, we think we're okay, right? We think we're okay. Even if it's dark, we think we're fine. This is like when you you wake up in the middle of the night and you have to go grab something that's in another room. You know your house. You know where everything is in your house, but somehow you still end up stubbing your toe. Because there's no light on. You haven't turned the lights on, so you walk in darkness and you think you know. You think you'll be okay. So too, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We wander in darkness and we think we're fine. We think we're fine. So Jesus comes and he shines a spotlight into our darkness. A blinding spotlight. And it shows us instantly that we have never been okay. Ever. Sometimes I deal with people, and I'm sure you have as well. I'm sure that you have been this type of person as I have as well. Where you just kind of feel spiritually cocky. You've got a, a certain spiritual swagger where you think, I'm good. Um, you're going around to everybody telling them, do you want my opinion on that? Because I can help you. I, I know how to do that. I would do it this way. I wish everybody would do life the way that I'm doing life right now. Then you'd be happy. There's moments in our sinful existence that we totally think that. One of the things that I like to do in those moments is say, if we could take the thought life 
of that person, if I'm being spiritually cocky and I took my thought life and threw it up on the screen and we just watched my thoughts as a video, would I still have that spiritual cockiness? The Bible says that in Psalm 139, that nothing is hidden from his sight. God sees everything. God sees it all. He is a bright, shining light right into the darkness of your own mind, and he sees it all. On the one hand, that absolutely humbles us. On the other hand, that makes us afraid. And a lot of people don't like it when their sin's exposed. It's not fun when you are um, being woken up in the middle of the night by a bright light. It's not a fun experience to have light shone right into your eyes. And that's what happens when Jesus comes and he preaches the gospel message. You are a sinner. You need a savior. We all kind of back away. No, I I don't want to see. But here's the way that I would describe it. Even though his revealing our sins to us feels awful, feels horrible, it's actually good news. It's good news in the way that a doctor finding cancer in your body is good news. You say, that's never good news. No, it is good news because now we found it, we found it early, we can treat it. It's terrible news to hear those words, but it's good news that we can treat it and we can deal with it. When Jesus comes and he says, I'm the light of the world, he's stepping into the darkness to say, you need help. And those who would say, I don't like what's happening here, but I'm glad that my heart's being exposed now and I can deal with my sin and I can walk and follow him now. He says, you will have light. We'll never walk in darkness again. And that's why he says, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. We talked about this in Family Bible Hour, what it means to follow Jesus. This is an amazingly pregnant Greek word. It's used of a soldier following his commander as a believer would follow Jesus. It's used of a slave following his master. It's used of someone who is foolish following a wise counselor and becoming wise. It's used of someone who follows the law in obedience. It's used of a student following a teacher's argument. All of this is given to us in this word to say, you follow Jesus that way. Follow him as a good soldier. Follow him as a good student. Follow him as a good slave. Turn to him and follow him. And then, and only then, if you give yourself totally to Jesus Christ, can you say with the psalmist, the Lord is my light and my salvation. I follow him. Following Jesus is a life-changing pursuit. Notice it's not, I'm the light of the world. He who tags along with me. He who hangs out with me. You must follow him. It's a pursuit, but here's the blessing. Whoever follows me, it's a universal offer. You can come. And if you follow me, you will not walk in the darkness, but you will have the light of life. It will be yours. When we go on our family camp retreat, um, I don't know if you've had this experience camping. This happens to me many times. You're walking around at night with, you know, a group of three, and one person has a flashlight. The one person who has a flashlight knows exactly where they're pointing that light and where they're going. And whenever I walk with somebody who has the flashlight, I always end up falling because they're not lighting my path. They're not helping me with where I'm going. I'm, I'm stepping over things I, I can't see, and I'm always trying to take the, the light. Hey, can you shine it here, shine it over here? You're not shining it where I need it. 
Jesus says, if you follow me, not only will I be your light, but you will have me and you will hold the light. You will be able to light that path in front of you. You'll never walk in darkness again. And since you hold the light, you will become that city on a hill that lights and shines brightly to other people. That is what Jesus says. If you follow me, that is what you will have. You will have me. So, a very potent moment, very powerful moment in the temple where Jesus makes an offer. This is who I am, this is what I will do, and this is how you can live if you will have me. What's the response? Verse 13. The Pharisees say to him, You're testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They're going to argue on a technicality. It's a decent technicality. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, if I'm testifying about myself, if I don't have another witness, then you shouldn't believe my testimony. And that's why he brought in other witnesses. He said, the Father testifies for me. John the Baptist testified for me. My miracles testify for me. And the scriptures testify. So I'm not testifying about myself, ultimately. So here he says, I'm the light of the world. If you follow me, you're going to have light. You're not going to walk in darkness. And the Pharisees say, you're testifying about yourself. They start arguing. Can I just say this? We're, we're seeing a picture of universal unbelief. This is what unbelief looks like universally. Determined disbelief by the Pharisees. Out and out rejection of Jesus. And we learn here and through this whole passage that unbelief never has enough quote unquote proof to believe in Jesus. Unbelief is always asking, I need more proof, I need more proof, I need more proof. Unbelief is never satisfied because they're not willing. Their unbelief begat their ignorance. They don't believe, so I need more proof, I need more proof, I need more evidence. The reality is Jesus could easily say to them, you don't need an argument to prove to you that light exists. If I were to ask you, how do you know light exists? You see it. You see. Open your eyes. You see. This isn't an issue of arguing to get to a point where you reason your way into belief. You open your eyes and you see. That's why 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that God opens our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And then we are saved. So... The Pharisees, in their unbelief, say, we'll we'll fight you on a technicality. Forget what you said about being light and uh, us walking in darkness. We don't need to worry about that. You can't say those things at all because you're testifying about yourself. And Jesus, instead of going back to chapter 5 and saying, here are all the other people that testify for me, he goes to the Father, but specifically he goes to where he himself is from. I'm from the Father. I'm from heaven. I'm sent by God the Father himself. So he says, verse 14, Even if I do testify about myself, my testimony is true. So even if it is just me, meaning it's not just me, but even if it were just me, it's still true. Because I know where I came from. I know where I'm going. You don't know where I've come from or where I'm going. You don't know. You don't believe. Why? Because you judge, verse 15, according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. We could could put in there according to the flesh. I don't judge the way you judge. Jesus says, verse 16, even if I do judge, which means that he does. So verse 15, he isn't saying I don't judge anyone, period. He's saying I judge rightly. I judge truthfully. I don't judge the way you do by mere appearance, by by the externals. 
Man looks at the externals. God looks at the heart. I see your heart. I am the light shining into the darkness of your heart. I judge you properly, correctly. My judgment is true, middle of 16. For I am not alone in it, but I am the Father who sent me. Verse 17, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. He's distancing himself from their traditions, even in your law. But I and the Father are the testimony that's everything you need. I've got two here. Verse 18, I am he who testifies about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. There's enough proof if you would have it. And they go to another technicality, verse 19. Where's your father? Where? Let me see him. Let me see him and I'll believe. Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Why does John then say, verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Why does he say that? I think because the words of verse 19 are so amazing. They're going to ultimately get uh, these religious leaders to pick up stones to try and kill him at the end of this chapter. These words are so amazing that John has to step in and tell us, and by the way, Jesus didn't die after saying those. He didn't die after saying those. Why? What did he say? My father calling himself the son of God, my father. He makes himself equal to God. The religious leaders know that. That's why they're going to try and kill him. And then if there's anyone in the entire world that knew the father, that loved Abba, it was the religious leaders. And Jesus says, you don't even know him. If you knew me, you would know him. But since you don't know me, you don't know him. Since you don't know him, you don't know me. That's why John says, and he's not dead yet. Those words would have gotten any other man killed, but Jesus Christ has an hour in which he's going to die, and this is not it. It's not it. So, that's what the light looks like. The light looks like the only way, the only truth sent by the Father, the only life possible. The light shines into our darkness, and if we would follow him, if we would accept him for who he is, we would never walk in darkness again. The light is a universal offer to all, but you have to commit your life to him by faith through grace. And the light testifies about where he is coming from. He comes from the Father to do the Father's will, to do the Father's work. What does the darkness look like? Verse 21 gets us into what the darkness looks like. Then... He said again to them, that word again is crucial because he's been saying these things over and over and over again. This isn't anything new. And he says, I go away. He's been saying that. I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus makes a statement. If you're humble, if you're willing, remember, unbelief, you never have enough proof. Give me more proof before I even ask you questions to believe in you. But if you're humble and willing and someone says that to you, where I'm going, you can't go, and you will die in your sins, a humble, willing response to that would be, how can I not? I, I, I want to go with you. 
I want to be with you. I don't want to die in my sins. Is there any way I can get out of this? But what is their response? I think there's a fourfold response, and it's a beautiful picture of unbelief. This is what darkness looks like. This is what people who love the darkness look like. Number one, they look like self-righteous scoffers. Verse 22, the Jews, and remember when John uses that term Jews, he's talking about all of the religious leaders. They were saying, instead of a humble, willing response, they say, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, there's two ways to take this. You can either say it's a genuine question. Is he going to kill himself? What does that mean? I don't understand. But since the word Jews is there, and we know the Jews have already mocked him like this in a certain way before in chapter 5, most people, most commentators and theologians would say, this is mocking. And what the religious leaders are doing is they are mocking Jesus by saying, okay, the only way that we can't follow you into the afterlife, we know where we're going. We're going to heaven. And the only way that we can't follow you is if you don't go to heaven. And the only way we can be assured that you're not going to heaven Based on historical, Josephus actually tells us this. They believe that if you commit suicide, you go to the worst part of hell. According to a Jewish person, according to the the religious leaders, you would go to the worst part of hell if you commit suicide. So they say, well, that's got to be the only way that we're not going to be able to follow you. Because if you think you're going to heaven, uh, we're going there. We know we're going there. So you must be going to hell instead. They mock him. They don't humbly and willingly come before him. They try to get off of the issue and mock him altogether. So they're self-righteous. We're good. We know we're going to heaven. Where are you going? And they mock instead of asking genuinely, what do you mean by that? Can you please help me understand so that I don't go where you're telling me I'm going to go? Verse 23, he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So number one, we see their self-righteous scoffing. Number two, another picture of an unbeliever is they love the world. You're from the world. You're of the world. You love the world. That that word for world, um, cosmos, it's the opposite of chaos. Chaos in the Greek, cosmos, those are opposites. Chaos is just chaos. It's just chaotic mess. Cosmos is order. This is the order of sinful humanity. You love, you live in the order of sinful humanity. That's what you live for. That's all you know. You're in darkness. And you love it. We saw this in Mark 4 a number of months ago in Family Bible Hour. When love for the the things of the world and the cares of the world chokes out the seed that's been sown of the gospel, you cease to bear fruit and you prove you were never truly saved. The darkness is represented in these verses by being self-righteous and scoffing, by loving the world. Again, Jesus says, I'm not from here. But you love the world. Verse 24, Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins, because unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. I love that. He gives a gracious offer one more time. You're going to die in your sins unless you believe. Here's another offer. Will you believe? Will you willingly come to me and believe? But they don't. And that's a third principle of what it means to be in the darkness. Determine disbelief. We will not. 
we will not believe. What is he asking them to believe? My Bible says I am he, and the word he is in italics. That means it's supplied for us. It's not in the original Greek. It's not in the original manuscripts. It's supplied to help us with understanding. Because if it just said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, we might be asking, I am what? You are what? What do we have to believe that you are? And I actually think that even though the religious leaders knew exactly what Jesus is doing, they're going to go that route with him. Wait, who are you? Who are you? I am what? What do you mean? We don't understand. But what is Jesus saying? You know what he's saying. He's saying, I am that I am. I am God. I am Yahweh. I am God, very God, the eternal, everlasting God. And unless you believe that, that's the whole point of this section. They do not believe that he is God, very God. You're a mere man. Who's your father? Where's your father? He's just an earthly figure. You're born somewhere that we don't really even care about. It doesn't matter. You're just a human person. And Jesus says, no, unless you believe that I am the son of God, you will die in your sins. I am God, very God. So they say, verse 25, who are you? Who are you? I am what? And Jesus says, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? I've I've said it, I've said it, I've said it. And this is principle number four, just a a fourfold picture of darkness. Number one, self-righteous scoffing. Number two, loving the world. Number three, determined disbelief. And finally, number four, continually obstinant. Continually obstinant. There is nothing that will break through. You just, in your... In your obstinance, you just keep saying, no, who, who are you? I'm not going to believe. You don't ask the question. You don't press in. You just keep up your rejection. That's what they do. And Jesus says, I don't really need to say who I am because I've told you that from the beginning. Verse 26, I've said many things. I have many things to speak. I've said many things. And I have many things to say to judge you. But he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They didn't realize, verse 27, that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So I don't think that that goes all the way back to verse uh, 19 and 20. I think that goes back to the hymn here. In verse 26, he who sent me, uh, which I heard from him, I speak. They didn't realize that he was speaking about the Father in that. I'm speaking by, by the Father's power, by the Father's will. Jesus knows that. Key word here, verse 28. So Jesus said... When the, when the Son of Man is lifted up, when you do this to crucify me and lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. So take out the, the pronoun here. Take out him, the Father. But when will you know that I am? I love this. When will you know? When will you finally get and finally understand that I am who I say I am? It's at the cross. The cross is where the greatest display of the glory of God is ever seen. It's the greatest display of the love of the Father. That's how you will know that there is a Father who loves you as you look at the cross. So Jesus says you will understand. Even uh, the centurion got it. By looking at the death of Jesus, he did not die the way that most common criminals, the way that any common criminal had ever died. That's why the centurion, as he sees Jesus die, says uh, at the end of Mark, truly this was the Son of God. Or the thief on the cross. You remember both uh, of the thieves on the crosses on either side of Jesus? They're both mocking. 
We, we tend to think one's bad, one's good. Uh, the Bible says that they start, they both start mocking Jesus. And then Jesus says something, and the one thief says, wait, we have to stop this. We can't do this. He turns to his, his other thief buddy and says, stop, stop mocking him. Why? Because Jesus wasn't dying like anybody had ever died. Jesus, as he's being nailed to a cross, says to his executioners, his murderers, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Such love and mercy and compassion, even in those moments, the thief says, this man's different. We deserve the death. We are dying. He doesn't deserve any of it. And by the way, would you remember me? I can't do anything to get to heaven. Would you remember me? Can you get me access? And Jesus says, yes. By the way, I'm not going to stay dead. You lift me up. I'm going to die and I'm not going to stay dead and you will know. And they knew. Oh, the Pharisees knew. We have a problem on our hands. That's why they pay the guards to start spreading lies. They knew. So Jesus says, I never do anything on my own initiative. I always speak the things that the Father tells me to speak. And he, verse 29, who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone. Again, if you knew me, you would know my Father. If you knew the Father, you would know who I am. He's not left me alone. And then this is just one of my favorite statements that Jesus says ever. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. There isn't one second of one day of Jesus's earthly life where he was not perfectly obedient and pleasing to the Father. And you know why I love that? Because when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus says, you get my perfect life as your own. You get my perfect life as your own. How perfect is the perfection of the life that Jesus gives us? God the Father looks at us and says, everything that Patrick does, he does pleasing me because he sees me as perfect as jesus i am not perfect but i can wear the righteousness of jesus and gain access to the father because of what jesus has done for me as he spoke all these things verse 30 many came to believe in him many did not and jesus is ultimately going to be killed because of these words but as we have a picture of the light and a picture of the darkness and we wrap this up Jesus is saying to you this very morning, if you follow me, you will have light. My question to you is, um, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this morning might be a good morning to recalibrate your following. Is there any place in your life where you have utter confusion? Jesus promises to bring light to your path. Jesus promises to bring light. Follow him closely and you will have light. Is there any place where you have sin and you're harboring uh, sin or, or bitterness or, or, or a love for something that is of this world? Today would be the day to throw that away and to say, no, I'm following the light. I'm following the light. If you're here this morning and you have never began following, you've never started a life with Jesus Christ, following him as a disciple. You've never acknowledged that you are living in darkness and you will die in your sins unless you believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. Can I just plead with you? If you go to chapter 12, John chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus says this, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. 
He who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. Jesus is saying there is a time where you can submit, you can repent, you can turn, and you can follow. But there's a time when you can't. For a little while longer, the light is here. The scary thing is at the end of that statement, the end of verse 36, John says, these things Jesus spoke and he went away and he hid himself. No longer is the light there. There is going to be a day where you can no longer choose Jesus. And so I plead with you before that day to choose him now, to follow him now. One day, this world will be filled with light and righteousness, and only light and righteousness. One day. Will you be with Jesus, ruling and reigning in heaven for all of eternity in light? The only way that you can say yes is if you are following Jesus and if his perfect record of pleasing the Father has been deposited into your spiritual bank account. You say, how do I get that? I want that deposit. Do you have to work to earn that money? Do you have to work to earn that favor? The gospel is so clear. Jesus paid it all. You simply need to admit walking in darkness, admit your sin deserves punishment, and turn to Jesus as the only hope that you have of everlasting life. And if you would do that today, you would begin by being motivated by grace to follow him in a way that you never thought possible. So follow him today. Have light that is the light and the life of man. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can come before it and before you in such a way where we are reminded again of who Jesus is, of what he has accomplished. And so we want to respond by saying we will follow you. No matter what's happening in our lives, we will follow you because you are truly all that we need. You are all that we have. And we want to wear that perfect righteousness because you are the one who deposited it into our account. We cannot earn it. You have to graciously give it to us as a gift. And that's what you have done through Jesus. So we accept it, we receive it, and we follow you. And we thank you now. Mm -hmm.